0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to be with you today. I've read a lot of World War II books for business and pleasure, and the book we're taking a look at today is one of the best and most enjoyable World War II histories I've ever had the good luck to come across. It's called The Last of the 357th Infantry, Harold Frank's World War II Story of Faith and Courage by Mark Hager. What differs this story from most is the way he shares the story with the reader. We're able to join Harold Frank as he grows up poor during the Depression, learning the values, faith in God, and survival skills he would need to survive the bloody shores of Normandy as a BAR gunner, as well as captivity in a German prison camp. It's a compelling story, made all the better from hours of interviews with Harold Frank, who truly was the last survivor of the war-torn 357th Infantry. This book will keep you on the edge of your seat throughout, and I highly recommend it. Mark Hager, thank you for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you, John, for for having me on, and and it, it it's just a sheer coincidence that I even got to meet uh, Harold, and even more stunning that I didn't know more about him, um, being that you know, where I work and the museum operation that I have, I, I felt I should have known him for years. And it was just an, an amazing feat. He's an amazing man. And I think everyone that's reading this will, will, will feel the same way.
0: If you don't mind, would you share a little bit of your background and then tell us what inspired you to write Harold Frank's story?
1: Well, uh, let me see. I'm from North Carolina, of course. I was actually a U.S. Army veteran. I was a field artillery surveyor and went to basic at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And then, uh, actually my first duty station, I was sent to Germany in, uh, the mid late 1980s before the wall came down. So I got to see, um, the effect of communism up front and close in front of me. And, uh, and while I was there for almost two years, I was able to travel some of these World War II sites that, uh, ironically, I, I'd heard a lot about in my family. We've got several. I had a pen- cousin that was on the Pennsylvania at Pearl Harbor and um, another uncle that was at Anzio. And so I was raised around a lot of uh, military veterans. And our family historically has had people involved with the military since before the founding um, of this nation. And so when I was in high school, I, I knew one thing for sure. I was going to join the army and because I wanted to, and and actually refused that, you know, going into athletics in my latter high school days because I didn't want to get hurt, which some of the coaches thought that was just bizarre, but said no, that was the key, was to get in the military, and then I knew afterwards I would go back to college and kind of follow a family trend, and and so um, after I completed uh, my tours in the service and then got back out, and then went back to school, did some land surveying in between using the survey skills, and then um, I went back to college and ch- chose a different angle. Uh, instead of, uh, uh, everyone told me, you need to teach history. That's all you do is live, eat, and breathe, and talk history, And but I like being outdoors a lot, and I was also intrigued somewhat with archaeology, and um, after completed my undergraduate work, I got talked into a program at Uh, besides lenore ryan university which is where i taught for quite some time still occasionally now even with the museum work but unc greensboro um, all of the public history department kind of was pulled out of chapel hill put in there and in it you could integrate parts of archaeology historic preservation um, museum studies and teaching history in a different way and and I brought all this together because there was one program that, since I was a U.S. Army veteran, that the faculty said, "This is yours. You're, we need someone to do this." And I said, "What is it?" And they said, "It's the American Battlefield Protection Program, and we're trying to save. Uh, they're trying to save what's left of battlefield sites, especially from the American Revolution." And they need someone to go to Guilford Courthouse, National, Mil- which was next to the school. And you're a military guy. And so I got involved with it and helped them to understand what really happened at that battle and some of the parts of the battle that just didn't line up with um, historiography. I was able to figure that out by using the Department of Transportation, tax records, using public history and finding uh, other bits and pieces of the puzzle so that when you ground truth if it doesn't make sense to the veteran then it's not going to make sense to anyone today so and that was a that was a very interesting thing and then from that um after graduate school went back into teaching and lenore ryan university called me to teach there and at the same time my county is a hugely historic area. Davie County, North Carolina is where Daniel Boone began his westward expansion. He decided right here to try to find the Cumberland Gap. His parents are buried here and we don't have a museum. So we would like for you to um, to be on board with us and help us to develop that and so I've been working on that for years and we've acquired a lot of a lot of farmland um, a lot of it historic that we're incorporating and that's when a, uh, a man that's close friend of both mine and Harold's now, more with Harold, um, called me up that he had bought a huge tract of land that he needed for farming. And I mean farming corn and soybeans, etc. But on it he had a very historic home and needed some pointers and you know that was my field. So I went out and gave him a lot of really good ideas and he enjoyed that and invited me to a farmer's luncheon which uh, I went to, and as I've told everybody on the radio, all over the place, I arrived late as usual, as my wife would say, (laughs) and got to that lunch in and looked around, and most of the seats were taken, and so when that happens, if I don't recognize people, I look for veterans and saw this one older gentleman with a POW cap on and walked over and asked if I could sit next to him, and he said, sure. And um, after we were eating, um, I asked him what unity was with, and he said he was with the 357th Infantry, and I, I just kind of got stunned. And uh, it's like I went full circle back to when I was stationed in, in Germany in the Army. And I said, wait a minute. I mean, he didn't look like he was over 80 years old. And I was sitting there thinking, well, this, well, the 357th, I don't remember that being in Vietnam. And I, I looked at him, I said, well, sir, uh, the only unit that I know with the 357th was the 90th infantry division, the tough hombres, the Texas, Oklahoma division. And he said, so, you know, of us. <laughs> and I went, well, sir, I know that you guys were basically wiped out three different times during the Normandy campaign. And from that, he got kind of emotional talking about all the men that um, were lost. And then I looked around I was. I had some napkins next to me and I had a few cards on me and I grabbed a pen. And I started asking questions, and I filled every one of them up. Everyone had left the place, um, except for me, him, and the guy that invited me to this. And um, his name is Spurgeon Foster. And, and they uh, both said, well, if you'd like, you can go to his farm and talk to him more. And I said, I'd love to. And uh, what had happened was his wife had died a few months before that meeting. And she had prodded him to to try to um tell his story, which he did not want her to know the horrors that he went through. Um, you know, he would give little tidbits here and there to people that knew him. But uh it was after this encounter that he decided to go ahead and um and tell the full story from one end to the other. And that's how that in the book and then that led to the Gary Sinise Foundation. Gary Sinise was soaring valor to to get him to the National World War II Museum, which if anyone out there has not been, I can guarantee you, even if you're not a, uh, a quote unquote military historian, you will love that place.
0: Is that New, uh, New Orleans?
1: Yes, in yeah. New Orleans, and that led to an invitation to you know to get Harold to uh, see if he would go back to Normandy for the famous 75th anniversary of, of D-Day, and uh, which he was reluctant. Um, and he would tell me, uh, we got to trust each other very well. And he said, I went over there once and liked and never got back home. And I don't want to go back and get stuck. Yeah. And I said, I understand that. But uh, I said that this, is, this may be the last large gathering. Um, that's what I'm being told. And he decided to go ahead and do that. And as a public historian, I'd already worked around the national war ii museum and i said let's carry this another level then i you know i gave a list of the battles that he was in and the and especially when he was shot and when he was captured and we had um, one particular historian his name is sylvain cast that you read about in the book that um, after um, doing some conversation back and forth with him i felt very comfortable that um, he could be a, a, you know, a big help. Because you take a veteran of 75, 75 years of trying to forget the horrors, and then now you're going to start peeling it back and putting it back into his memory. You need to have real careful people around, um, and that's, that's what happened. And that led to um, finally writing the book.
0: How does one go about discussing wartime memories with a combat veteran? It's like you said, it's very dicey. you got to be real careful what questions you ask and how much you're peeling back.
1: If you, my first thing would be even family members. Some people may would say, well, look, my dad, you know, I know what he went through because it was my dad or something. And after you listen to some of these combat veterans, you're finding, no, they don't really know. They know little or they know half as much as somebody that they don't really know as well because they're more reluctant to talk directly to their loved ones. Yeah. Um, it can be an opposite. I mean, you'll you'll say, well, I've heard him talk about Normandy. I mean, I'm talking about somebody else's dad. But you bring in another veteran who has served and been overseas to sit down, and once they feel comfortable with you, you're more apt to um, peel away and they're more apt to want to discuss things they've been trying to hold back on, but you got to do it in pieces. And what I found with Harold, I, I started all over and said, let's, let's start with your childhood. I don't want to talk about the war right now. Um, Let's, let's go back to when you were little. And, and it was an amazing story. And as you read in the book, I focused on when he was five years old, an event, in which they all had to build their house. And we're not talking about a house like we think of today. It's, it's a house they desperately needed to change the circumstances they were already in in the Great Depression. But when you read about it, the house had no indoor plumbing, no indoor heating, and this was going to be great. And he is sleeping in quilts that his mom made, made out of burlap sacks. Um, and this was an improvement. Yep. And... And he's five years old, and there's no complaining. And then I said, you know what? This is where I need to focus. I need to back up. And for the readers, when they talk about the greatest generation, uh, and they'll they'll say they were the greatest generation. They came out of the Great Depression and fought World War II. But there is no defining of what the depression meant. And when people think that, um, you know, they were dirt poor. What does that mean? Um, so I, after listening to Harold for hours and videoing it, and I would go back and forth pieces, and I said, you know what, I'm going to go and get into his head, and we're going to start from when he is a boy at five years of age and live his life.
0: Yeah, you did, then, I'm not trying to ruin this. What you're saying is great. I just want to add the fact that that was one of the best parts of the book. I wish it could be required reading uh, for school today because it was it was an account that was so detailed and so yeah. good that you you were there with him uh, yeah. on that farm and life was tough and you can continue i didn't mean to interrupt but i just wanted to say it should be required reading it was that good and that interesting to read about just how it was and how that shaped him shaped him oh, for, yeah. for for the war when they when
1: when something broke there was no hardware store there i mean there was nothing Um, you had to farm and to, beyond, you had to have some cash, which for them was mainly you know, some sweet potatoes and cotton. But to eat, it was going to be a full hands-on deck, work day in and day out to do it. And if you broke something, you didn't just fix it, it had to be fixed so it wouldn't break again. Um, This is that ingenuity of, of that great generation to where you look at a problem, and you're looking not just to fix it, but how can I make it better so I don't have to come back in here again and fix it in another week? It's, it's, they're looking way down the road. So th- when he goes and tries to start hunting, um, he first needs to know exactly how this weapon operates, how to take it apart, how to clean it, what exactly is the, um, is the, in terms of the black powder that's going to be used in the Ivy Johnson, what's, um, so that way you understand why you don't let the barrel get dirty, um, and then make sure you understand that this is all we have. So when they get out there and hunt, um, you just don't shoot willy nilly. And then if you're quail hunting, which was vital in this part of the country back then, you know the dog is going to find you the singles when the covey busts. The dog's got you covered. So don't, just don't start shooting when the birds fly up. So they look for waiting as RP, his famous famous favorite uncle, taught him that any time a large covey bursts, that when they cross, that's the one you shoot, you try to hit two, and then if you don't, it's okay. The dogs are gonna find them when they land in singles, and then you can get them one at a time, but you constantly try to um, adapt, and the slingshot, um, even his sister could make a slingshot as good as him when they were just little kids, and then they used them and um, to bring in food for the for the family. Um, there was no food drives. There was no harvest bank. There is no um, if if you're poor, you can go to this charity and they're going to have these stockpiles of cans with green beans and such just waiting on you. It says if we ever end up in a crisis like they did, which could very well happen, you know, people are going to have to look at their own um, talents their own abilities. And as you will learn from Harold, that inner working the nucleus of the family and the family needs to be strong and the community supportive. And um, I think what I'm getting from some people is by the time they read those first five chapters, they're wondering, I don't know if the current generation of America um, could do what they did if we end up in another crisis like that. So Hopefully, if anything, when people read this book, then they can see the the seeds of how you can do this and Mm -hmm. how you can pull things together. Or if you're a teacher and you're trying to find an all-encompassing book that'll handle the Great Depression, the Greatest Generation, in other words, that'll handle the teaching of it, handle the teaching of World War II and what was happening here, what was the feelings here while the war was going on, then my other angle with the book is that you can get it all in that one book.
0: We'll return to The Last of the 357th with Mark Hager right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers, as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device I have a special, limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001stories at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001stories at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. And now, back to our interview. It's a, great, it's a great story, and a great story of faith, too. Uh, there were a lot of times, uh, both on the battlefield and in prison camp, when he could actually feel his mother praying for him. And yeah. that was some inspiring times. And a couple of times, she pulled his fat out of the fire. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, just yeah, some amazing Ed, stuff.
1: And he will tell you still to this day um, that when he meant that he could feel his mama's prayers, that he would l- visibly wake up with her saying his name or something and she and he knew she was praying and normally the odd thing was as you saw in the book when he if he's startled if he woke up startled and the, you know paul esworthy or whoever was him, said, was it your mom and, th- and it was that was not good that something was going to happen um which normally did uh and but the feeling of and that's uh, the value of prayer, he can tell you that, um, that's the only way he survived. Why an armor piercing round went through his shoulder and stopped and didn't go, if it had carried on its route, it would have killed him. Um, then, I mean, he still wears the bullet around his neck still to this, this day with his dog tags that he still wears with his bronze star and purple heart and, and et cetera. But, uh, when you look at it, I just, it's, that anybody that knows much about weaponry, it should have gone right. A shoulder should not have stopped it. But, uh, the Germans, and the only reason why it's out is the Germans needed him to work more hours and that work camp. So without anesthesia, then they put him, pulled him down and pulled it out of his shoulder. And, uh, so he still has it still to this day. But, and then the medic story, um, You know he really thought that he was you know from the combat that he saw and he could tell from the infection in the wound and the others were moving away from him, that were captured that he felt it was just a matter of time that he wouldn't make it and then out of nowhere they captured a US Army medic and let him keep his bag and brought him in and he recognized Harold and his wound and um, went to work on it then he never saw him again
0: yeah that just came out of nowhere that one that one just came out of left field how important was the BAR man to to the infantry? They hit on, on D Day plus four, right? And from, um, from then on it was pretty deep in action. How yeah, important the, was being a BAR man and how, how long did those guys survive as a rule?
1: Well, as a I was an artilleryman and as a surveyor or in Ford Observer, they used to tell us that in combat uh, I think our lifespan would be, I, that was in the viewpoint of the Cold War about fighting Russia would be less than five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Which, mean you know, Army computers, I mean, I, I, I would just shake my head uh, at that. But literally in World War II, the BAR man was the only one with a uh, machine gun in a infantry rifle squad. So um, a lot is placed upon him. And of course, he has this assistant gunner.
0: Explain that, to our listeners like, what the BAR was and and yeah. what its capacity was. Well, for all the
1: veterans out there, and I know you're shaking your head because you want to you want me to say the real term. It, it was a badass rifle. Yeah, that's why it was called a B. That was the military. That 30 odd six shoots several hundred rounds a minute. Um, fire, you know, it's the same 30 odd six that's carried in the M1 Garand, um, which was beneficial. But every every infantry squad needed it. it was a Browning automatic rifle for the civilian world out there. Who's confused what I mean? But it's the Browning automatic rifle developed in World War One at the at the end of it didn't see a whole lot of service. And one the U.S. Army didn't want it to be captured and to be found towards the end, and so it didn't receive most of its service until you arrive in World War Two. But very effective. Um, And German forward observers would clue in on where the machine gunners were and try to knock them out quickly. And and Harold would um, spend time trying to figure out a way to switch back and forth to confuse them. Was it a BAR or was it an M1 Garand and was switchback weapons? But uh, it's the only machine gun. You had a machine gun you had one person with a grenade launcher, which was the uh, what was it the oh uh, lost my frame train of thought, not an eighteen o three M one o three bolt action Springfield thirty odd six that they readapted to firing a um uh, a grenade off the end of it. So you had one of them, you had one machine gunner, and everyone else carried um an M one Garand, and so the usually the guy with the M one with the uh, BAR led the patrol and would lay down the covering fire if something happened and then the others would move around and then of course the guy with the grenade launcher or when I was in the military I carried a, a 203 which was underneath the M16 and, um, and then that way that person would be the only thing of artillery you may have as an infantry squad so you would all have to um, work together um as a as a team and so everyone's looking at that bar man and harold used that skill that he got from his uncle that soon as sergeant friday in basic training with the 271st infantry at camp shelby just held up the rifle and said it fires several hundred rounds per minute he already had his hand in the air saying i want that and then they gave it to him and he he memorized the book on it could tear it apart, put it back together quickly within 10 minutes, um, and then learned everything about it to where he excelled quickly, and that's one of the reasons I'm not going to give all the book away, but why he ends up being pulled, along with a few other BAR men, out of the 69th Division at Camp Shelby, and they didn't know why. And they end up in Camp Shanks, New York, and then on troop ship bound for England, And then he finds himself in England um, actually trying to help others um, with the BAR because the 69th trained as a division for a year. But what was happening as they were preparing for Normandy, you were having boys coming out six, seven weeks or whatever of basic training and then have the weapon. And that's not enough training. Um, And so he was working with them on that. And then of course, as you saw in the book, it's what eventually led to his capture and being caught behind enemy lines trying to find two lost patrol, two lost companies.
0: How dangerous was the Cotentin Peninsula and how much of the 357th was lost there?
1: They lost 115% of their men within oh, about the first two, two and a half weeks of action when they came in. And at Utah Beach, this, the 90th actually arrived on D-Day part of the 357th, which has always been confusion for Harold. He had forgotten just about everything about the war. Well, not everything about the war, but some of the worst memories, and then many years later is trying to put pieces together, and so he found, and I've got it, it's a it's a little small book on the 357th that said that they didn't land with the first waves, which Harold knew that he didn't land with the first waves, but he saw that they did come in On D-Day, and their job was to stay on the beach, set up um, offensive positions, so that the whole division would arrive by June the 10th. And then their job was, as the 4th Infantry moved from Utah Beach towards Cherbourg, their job was to take Cherbourg, the only deep water port on the Cotentin Peninsula. Until that happened, all the Allies would be subject to those Marbury. Um, artificial ports that were brought in and which they didn't know exactly how they were going to work at that time. They just knew that was their only way to get the plane, I mean the ships, the tanks, the ammunition, the everything you needed on shore until they could get Cherbourg. So the 90th end was to cut straight across the Cote not turn towards Cherbourg, but block any attempts of German units trying to race to um, help the guys that were going to be surrounded in Cherbourg or any Germans that, if it starts to fall, tries to escape from Cherbourg and get out of peninsula. So the 90th is going to end up having to fight two different sides of the Cote to 10, and that's why their losses were were uh, so so big. As several historians told me, the part that Harold was in from um, from just outside of the Lafayette Causeway, the famous point where the 82nd Airborne, actually, it was kind of more with uh, Saving Private Ryan over the the bridge over the Merred River that had to be held at all costs and it nearly fell, and then the 90th arrived and saved it um, from that point um, through the battles at Equivinaville Hill 122 um, especially for the town of Gorbeville which is st- it's there it's still not much today and then over to Boucadre which would be the last big operation before St. Lowe. That was where the 90th lost most of its its men in World War II. And that's where Harold is right in the middle of it.
0: That's where he got wounded and then captured.
1: Yep. At, yep. at the Battle of Bucadre.
0: How many days was uh, was it in since the since D-Day plus 4 till the time he got captured? How many days was he fighting? Um so he was in combat for about 30 days. Yeah. And
1: um that's non-stop. Um, yeah, and one uh, one sergeant major I, I mentioned in the book told me, he said that, you know, when you compare what they did, going foxhole to foxhole, um, they're not really coming back to a barracks at any point. Um, you can trace them all the way across Europe, foxhole to foxhole. Um, the resourcefulness that you had to have to endure that battle alone, not just the combat side, was horrendous and. Um, and Harold's story, you'll, you'll find that, um, as to how they learn to overcome those obstacles. And I wouldn't say become comfortable with it, but they learn to cope with that kind of action. And when you look at the weaponry that they're carrying, um, versus a 5.56 five, or you know, like an M16, um, these are 30-odd six rounds, and the Germans with seven millimeters and, and, and larger firing back at you, um, my, I understand why none of them can hear that are still alive uh, because the combat, the noise that they would have experienced when they went into combat compared to um, combat later on um, was uh, vastly different and the horrendous there are stories in there I think that you saw to where even some of the French women that, um, that were loyal to some of the German soldiers that um, yeah. there are stories I didn't really, I mean, I knew about at the end of the war when France had been liberated immediately, the French went after those who had been fraternizing with the Nazis, and you saw the images of them cutting their hair, and stuff, but you didn't really know what was going on, but when you read Harold's story, then you'll see, and unfortunately, we're, you know, he had to kill yep. uh, yeah. many that were getting ready to, they were either firing back or preparing to fire back, at them coming out of the hedgerows in France, um, and then also when he when he gets captured, um, when people think about what does it mean to be captured before you're even in the prison of war camp, you need to see what the Germans did to to them in between. Um, a lot of the cruelty, which it's it's un it's it's just unbelievable cruelty because it was. Organize in such a way to inflict as much casualties upon them. At using our own, I'm not going to bring the whole book into all that. You can you
0: can read about it. Um, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty gruesome. Making yeah. them drink from the slop bucket when they shoved, they shoved them in a railroad car. Mm-hmm. Um, and guys just dying right and left, just yeah bad news.
1: And so you'll you'll find that in it. And then when you get into a POW camp um you'll get an upfront um how bad it really was and, and one of the it's not really amusing but Harold sometimes when he gets into a discussion with people and he tells them that he went into the work camp they knew they had to find something better and and that when they did um, they did get better food and sometimes he'll forget to explain that and he'll ask me how how he did and then I said well Harold when you say it was better food in the work camp, you had a horse head from a horse thrown over the fence onto the ground, and then you and a hundred and seven men had to eat that, and that would supply you with the meat for one month. Yeah. hmm Okay. So I don't know what you mean by that was better. <laughs> to uh, <laughs> and unless you unless you explain um, that, so you'll you'll get that in the in the book and those childhood memories of how he survived with the slingshot and germans didn't know that he uh built a slingshot while he was in there was able to do it and got with a team of three other guys um that formed kind of a squad on trying to kill what rabbits that they could in that work camp and and dress it and eat it and discard all the remains of it without the Germans knowing. Um, that was another part of the book that you'll find uh, when you read about
0: it. If you don't mind, I'm going to give the listeners a couple paragraphs uh, of, of the action. That It's amazing to me. The reason I, I want to read this section is because Harold Frank recalled this so well. You brought him totally back uh, to that moment. And after I read this, I want you to be thinking, of while I'm reading it, I want you to be thinking about, times when you felt we just couldn't go any further with this particular conversation. We've got to change it. Maybe the memories are too painful. So be thinking about some examples of that and how you handled the interview while I'm I'm covering this for our our readers. I just want to give them a sampling of how intense and accurate that recall was. Harold grabbed his assistant gunner and ran 30 yards. They hit the ground and rolled into another crater just as a German 88 blasted the crater he had recently vacated. Frank realized that the sergeant had seen combat before and must have known the ground they had just occupied had been immediately zeroed in for attack by German mortar and artillery fire. A BAR drew attention. Desperate fighting continued as Frank and Esworthy shot down four German defenders attempting to fall back. Combat was surreal. The sounds, smells, and adrenaline combined with continuing acute concentration as Frank moved forward with his BAR. Frank realized from the loss of other BAR riflemen that German forward observers were training artillery specifically into BAR positions. Frank worked on the trigger pull to make it as sensitive as possible so that three rounds fired at the touch of the trigger. The salt water and sand slowed the action, so Frank took that opportunity to clean the three gas ports and the trigger assembly by applying light oil. Then he went back into action. The training at Camp Shelby and years of hunting with Uncle Ferris made cleaning his gun a quick operation for Frank. It was also instinctive to Frank to conserve the rounds, which served not only to improve accuracy, but also helped to delay Germans from locating his BAR.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, intense. And with Harold, um, he quickly realized just how quickly that they were homing in on him and he was fresh to combat and the german sergeant the the one that you know kind of made the comical thing at the beginning saying um, talked about his bar i can't remember how he worded it but told told Harold will lead us out with that badass rifle and uh, so um, so when he, when he went into it as he climbed up out of one crater and then, um, well, one, he just realized he killed his first person. Um, And there were several of them in that machine gun nest. And then it started hitting him during all the sound. He could (laughs) not a pleasant thing. He was being cussed at. And it was the same Sergeant that was yelling. And then when he finally honed in on what he was saying, was yelling to get out of the crater to move. Mm -hmm. And so he grabbed Esworthy and you know they did and then when he heard the round come in right behind them and knocked out the spot where he was then he said this guy knows what he's doing Uh, he's been in combat before and then started it's it's kind of if you're a veteran there are there are some things that happen when you finally realize it's serious that i mean we laugh about today because when you're young you, you think you're invincible i know when i was in basic training um we were learning how to set up claymore mines and you had to wire it so fast and then jump back into your, you know, your firing position and then hit it. First you had dummies at first, so that whenever you hit it, you just had a flash that showed that you did it correctly. But then when you do it for real and then it goes off, I remember jumping in, going, I can't remember if I turned, turned it with the front towards the enemy. You know, on the claymore mine, it says for the army, I guess. Or maybe it was for the Marines to had to do this, but it said "front towards the enemy," so you know, clearly. And then, when it was successful, and I didn't even think about, you know, it could have backfired towards me. But then I got back to uh, guys that were in my basic training squad, and I said, "You know what? We could get hurt doing this stuff." Hmm. And then, it kind of dawned—you just now figured this for Harold. That that event, um, it was a wake-up. You know this. And then you looked around at the bodies, and he would tell me at that point, "I'll have nightmares tonight um, over this." Yeah. And then looking up, and then that brought memories of seeing all of the 82nd, 101st Airborne shoots hanging in trees still when they arrived, and and mutilated men hanging from those trees. And then at the rendezvous point for the 90th um, near Pointe La um, came across the gliders where everyone in the glider was dead. Yeah. Um, and those things brought back really bad memories um, to them. And that's why I caution people when they try to pry into their dad or somebody else's um, combat history, sometimes they may often elude you and give you an answer you don't want to know just to keep you off from them having to say what they actually saw. Yeah. Um, And so you have to learn um, kind of their physical tone, um their emotional state went to okay let's go back to your childhood again and or talk about just something different or let's go get something let's go somewhere let's go yeah just get them off the subject of it for a while get them comfortable for Harold ironically was taking them to the range <laughs> and um you know came um, we've become close friends with some guys that are in special operations and they've kind of adopted them and we'll go down to Fort Bragg and take him and he still shoots, he, he'll still shoot the BAR, <laughs> wow. um, M1 Garand, whatever he wants to bring, they don't care. You know, <laughs> at, at 96, 97, if you can still shoot, then More power whatever. to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, and when he does that, it, it, it seems to make him better. Um, he feels more comfortable. And oftentimes, if you have the camera um, at that point, um he he will open up on some things because he's around people that that understands um more than others and they'll even tell some of the things that they they remembered and things and so you can start fitting the pieces together because um, harold he has things he, he has a point a story that's way towards the end and but he'll say it as if it was way at the beginning And then a story way at the beginning that was really way at the end. And after action reports, I've learned you cannot, you can only use them in public history as kind of a, um, oh, what's the word? Um, After action reports notorious with World War II to where you take a person who normally doesn't want to do a report. This is military guys. We understand what that means. And then he may himself not want to be thinking about it so much but as that officer or whoever, um, if it was an NCO sometimes, um, has to go back and remember what had just happened. They're piecing it together with what they want to know. Yeah. And not necessarily everything being um, correct or not. So you can only use an after action report as kind of a, it's a pointer um, that you can kind of use, but in combat, everything changes. Um, units get mixed up, um, and it can last for days. It can, um, it, when you get into World War II kind of combat. And I had Sar- uh, one Sergeant Major, Rock Merritt, which is another story I'm, I'm working on now. He told me, he I think he had gone back to Normandy, did all the jumps with 82nd Airborne. And he, I, don't, I forgot how many times he went back to Normandy for uh, reunions and there was always an expert that had read all the reports that said when you come back i can take you right to where you were and he said every time i went back and i would look right at him and say i wasn't here <laughs> yeah i don't i did i know where i was and this was not the spot where i was the and they said the it says right here this is right this is he said no i, I know what you're saying but i, I was not here wow. and uh so as a as a combat veteran, you know, combat veterans would laugh and say, it's always that way. You always, it's, it, whatever the report says, just go with it um, or, or something. But the fog of war, it's a, it's a good term. So with Harold, that became a nightmare for me is to try, there are still two days that I've still never figured out where he was um, from the beach. There's There's two days that I know he's there and it fits with some of the accounts um with them. But um after that I felt pretty good that I've got everything else pretty much detailed. And the Mighty Eighth Air Force was the key to helping me understand where the work camp was. Um that work camp, um, very important, um, because I knew it was near Dresden and we knew there was an airfield on it. And Harold gave an account of he watched when they were getting ready to do the big bombing. Well, he didn't know the great big bombing at night for, um, what was that, February the 12th, 1945, that a flare dropped and it was dropping straight over the camp. And he thought, oh, Lord, I mean, oh, my Lord. Uh, in other words, a lot of other words that he used, they're going to hit us. And Mighty Eighth and said, no, that was where they were to the turn and ah. they knew that spot on the map and they were to turn at that flare all the planes and then start dropping and that would be over Dresden so then they sent me the map of where that spot was and that was Klotty Airfield yeah and where Harold was and I went there's my missing pu- piece of the puzzle <laughs> and I got it I'm I know where he was and then things match but again you anytime you have a combat veteran he's got a CIB combat infantry badge um. Don't get frustrated when you say, that couldn't have happened here, but it could have happened over there. Um, Just listen. Just read. um, Go back through the video again and then try to match those missing pieces and put it back together and then the light bulb will go off. and Oh, I see what he's saying now. Um, So this happened. And then you're actually helping him understand it. Because when you take a PFC, um, they ended up being squad leaders and you name it at, at Normandy because of the sheer losses of men. But you can imagine how confusing it was for them to know why they're at this city, um, which really isn't a city, but why we're at this, this place or that place. And um, years later, when they try to piece it back together as Harold did, it actually helps him to better understand why was he at Gourbetville? Um, why did they have to go through Equivinaville? And, and what was the um, reason to be over at Bucadre as they were cutting all the way across? Then it all clicked and it helped him to better understand um, his story.
0: Yeah. It's an amazing, amazing story. When did he first realize he was coming home? Hmm.
1: I would. He would say, he knew he was going to make it when, when he saw the sergeant on the jeep. Um, When, at first, when the German guards, when they went in after, you know, one of the most harrowing parts of his story was being evacuated from the POW camp, and he didn't want to be captured by the Russians who were coming from the direction towards Dresden, that part of Germany. He didn't want to be captive. He didn't feel any better with them being there than anybody than the German army. And the Germans were all trying to escape too. And um, 4 days of non-stop. There's no rest. There's there's no place you're not eating, you're not drinking. It's just 4 days of walking and they lost men as you read in the book during during that time period. But, you know, the sudden the sudden change to where one morning they noticed some of the German guards were in civilian clothes, and then the one, the only guard that he had that he had some moderate trust with was that 67-year-old plus um, sergeant who had been in World War One with Germany, who told him that the war was over, that they they should go, and they didn't know if they should go or not. They didn't know if they were going to start and then all be gunned down, or or what, and. So they went a little bit more and a little bit more, and then finally realized as they disappeared from where they were, that this was it, but what do we do now? And then they came across that small little village and a Jeep had pulled up and noticed that it was part of Patton's Third Army. And then they recognized who they were. I guess the red triangle on the trousers that the Germans made them paint on it as POWs that they recognized and told them to stop, sit down, and got vehicles up to them, and then that realization was that we're going home, um, we're going to make it. And so it was, it was that point before they ever got to Camp Lucky Strikes that uh, they were relieved.
0: Is there anything you'd like to cover that we've missed that you think is important?
1: Um, well, a couple of things would be one, as you already mentioned, it's extremely important that you go back and look at the at the family bond that he had. And how they all were dependent upon each other—mom, dad, um, his brother, sister, and the local community—to survive the Great Depression. That—that that you you mentioned um, when he comes back home, the real secret to his success was he homed in on the hard work ethic that his parents instilled in him. That when many soldiers that that come back from that kind of combat, nor, sometimes it ends very bad for them quickly. When you look at uh, veteran suicide rates even still today, especially after the mess that just happened with Afghanistan that has made a lot of my friends who were over there very upset at things. But that hard ethic, that hard work ethic, not to give up, um, always be there for each other. And in his case, the family, he's back. He needs to get back into it. But um, Reba, his his wife of 68 years, when they meet, that's when you'll find in the book he really puts the rest uh, a lot of his his uh, wartime um, memory. He has something else that's um, that's taken that time away from him, and she figures out more than anybody else how to get him to eat a full meal again. Um, the Army tried and um, at uh, Memphis, and of course one of the points with that was at Memphis, he meets the guys coming back who had been in um, Japanese POW camps, and as bad as the Nazi camps were, um, it wasn't anything in comparison to what he witnessed, and you'll you'll see that in the book um, for that. But in the end, um, he was he was always dedicated. He kept his faith in God. Said there's no way he could have survived without it. Um, and then his devotion um, to his wife and family um, was was paramount, and always trying to help others. Um, not just yourself, which is kind of a military thing. You don't really get paid to be a soldier. Um, uh, it's kind of a joke within the service as to you don't join the Army for money. But that usually carries a um, kind of a characteristic of guys that volunteer um, to go in the service. It's, it's a much deeper call of duty um, that really salary is not one of those things that you think on. Uh, and so Harold shows that when he comes back to where he doesn't have a lot. He works really hard and does re- and does well. Um, saves everything that he can and um, provides a good home. Um, works, and then even when he isn't working full-time, he's working as a deputy sheriff when, when asked for his help. And he did that for, what, 24 years. That actually meets Bob Hope as a result, being a special deputy to serve as his security for the Crosby Tournament. In North Carolina, and then so it always leads to good things. You know, when you work hard um, and stay dedicated, you'd be surprised what um, what happens. And that's kind of the uh, success towards the end that any man, any any American citizen can do well if you put your mind to it and um, are willing to work and work hard for it. And that's and for the future generation of America, it's this is a a working example. This book, of in case something does happen, this is how you can cope. If you're a veteran returning and you are just upset and at the at the way that they're being looked at, or or maybe they're not even all like the war and terror was something that was it's vague. It's it's way off. When they come back home, they you know the public in general doesn't re- recognize it. So, and they have some problems with uh, with getting back into society. Well, there's a book for you to read too, to help you cope. There, that's where Harold's story is going to be something that will go to a lot of different areas. People who have been in trauma, in or out of the military, will find some hope in his book.
0: I agree. There's a there's a lot of there's a lot of direction for those who are seeking it uh, in that in his story and the way you've written it, which is which is excellent. I enjoyed every bit of it. I
1: what? would surely hope as we go to Independence Day, and I know that's only about three and a half weeks away, mm-hmm. that when um, we think about freedom and liberty, that I wish everyone, I wish every veteran especially, because um, somehow I don't know how you can do it, You can get it at barnes and noble amazon i know there i know regnery publishing is doing what they can to get it everywhere but um it's something i think that over and before independence day you should read it
0: and it also makes a great gift folks for for any veteran you know uh either your family or friends anyone in your circle it's a great gift for veterans too they'll appreciate this book because it's written by a guy who's a veteran and it's about a guy who survived some of the toughest fighting in World War II. It's the last of the 357th Infantry, Harold Frank's World War II story of faith and courage by Mark Hager, H-A-G-E-R. And like Mark said, it's available wherever good books are found.
1: (laughs) Yes, it is. And I'm happy to be an American. And uh, as soon as you read it, pass it on to somebody else or show them where to get it.
0: Is Harold still with us today?
1: Uh, he's, He's doing well. Um, for, I mean, for almost 98 years old, uh, I mean, he's, I hope that I can be anything like that, but I know from, um, doing the documentary on the 75th anniversary of D-Day, had three main veterans, Harold and a guy that was with Patton, one of Patton's tankers in the 737 tank battalion. And of course, the Sergeant Major who was with the 82nd and he passed away during COVID. And I thought he was one of the ones in the best health um, we're losing these guys so fast and I'm, I'm trying, he wants to go everywhere that I tell him to go, but I worry about that with his health. And so we are on the road. some, going to different places and events will be across in cross Georgia and in July. I know we're, I think we're scheduled to, to be at the national infantry museum and have an event and book signing there. I know at the mighty eighth air force, um, museum in Savannah I think that is July the 7th and we're gonna be at Fort Bragg on Veterans Day at the Special Operations Museum and um, and then there's a lot of different places in between and I, I kind of have to gauge Harold as to his health at the time um, yeah. because it's just uh, it's just that important it's not that I want people to buy the book it's because the story is so important, and so I waive any, any cost that you know. They, I know the National Infantry Museum. What is your speaking cost? And I said, well, if I'm going to be speaking at a military installation, then, well, for one thing, I would be afraid some of my buddies would kick my butt if they knew that I was charging the military. <laughs> yeah. So I said, no, there is none. We just, we just want people to, um, to get this book, and you know, if we're there to speak, and he's to uh, talk a little bit about the war. That's fine. Um, I just think that his story and the hope that he gives, and uh, especially for a veteran out there who is is kind of teetering one way or the other on what he or she should or shouldn't do at this point, that hopefully they can they can grab the book. And if you've noticed the size of the book, it's purposely made so that if you're a soldier, you can put it in your duffel bag or in your... <laughs> You can you can put it and take it with you. Yeah, it's uh, good size. To when you deploy, to have it to pull out to read, and uh, because I think it's it's that important that they'll they'll find everyone's going to find a different part of his story that they they clue in on. But uh, whether it's a, a civilian that's that's going through a huge struggle, or you're you're a military person that's been wounded badly, um, head trauma, um, whatever the case may be. Um, you'll find, I think, some peace with reading this book.
0: Share with our listeners what you're working on
1: now. Well, um, the next one I hope to be working, is working with the family of um, Sergeant Major Merritt and putting his story together with his time in the 82nd Airborne Division. And um, that story, I, it's an amazing story. Um when you think of resiliency, this one's a little different than Harold and in, in that it's just as dirt poor, or maybe even more so than Harold was growing up, and he is in the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma as a child.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, and that's where it's the refocus. And you've had the Band of Brothers with the 101st. I like to think of this one as the um, new Band of Brothers with the 82nd. Yep. And so I'm, I'm just starting to work on that one now.
0: Well, thank you very much, Mark, for your time today and for your uh, for your book, which is fantastic. I enjoyed it very much, and I know our listeners will enjoy it as well.
1: Well, thank you, and I uh, can't wait for people to read it and hear back from them as to what they thought. But everyone's been
0: uh, fantastic. How do people get in touch with you?
1: Uh, it's actually should be maybe in the book, but... I know my email is forks the at yadtel.net. and that's that's the easy easiest way at that point to get in touch with me or to contact Ragnarie Publishing directly. Okay, and they can get that to you.
0: Well, um, well, thank you very much. Enjoyed the interview today. Okay, well, thank you. Ed.